Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Luddy buddy, we've got John Ludwig with us today, who's going to talk to us, Tim, about how shale development is a statistical play, what it's like to be a Florida gator in the oil patch, and all about the various stints that he's had both inside and outside of the industry. You know John a little bit better than me. You guys have spent some time together, so why don't you uh, kick this thing off? Yeah, actually, I was going through our roster of alumni of the show. Of course, this is the first Florida Gator, which is good, but going through the roster of the show, I think this is the first time we've had, we've had founders of companies, but this is the first one that's a real technology founder. I mean, Barry, we had Barry on and he was, he did, you know, it was really a data play, a little yep. bit of technology. Now John's coming in and it's, it's truly a tech play. It's going to be pretty cool to, to talk about. Of course, he's been on uh, digital wildcatters a couple times before. So this, this is going to be pretty easy for him, but uh, John started up Novi labs. What was it? 2017, 16. What was that, John? Even earlier than that, 14 and 15. 14 we, we really and 15. didn't get going until the middle of 15. Well, it's cool. So, so tell you what, why don't you go ahead and run us through a little bit of your bio because it's not the normal path to oil and gas as we're finding. No one takes a normal path to oil and gas, as it turns out. But how did you get into the oil and gas business? Yeah, it's an interesting story. I mean, when, when you start out, uh, when you start out going to college in Florida, there's not a lot of uh, oil and gas uh, exploration going on down there. So not too many people are looking for that as a, as a career. But um, I started a, a technology company in like 1997. Uh, and like a lot of tech companies in the 90s, we, we, we flew to prominence, had a great couple of years as the general economy was just, in, just awesome uh, back at that time. And we went public in 99. Uh, and we had an office in, we were based in Boulder, uh, and we had an office, we also had an office in Houston. So as we started building out our office and selling our software, we started gaining a, a foothold in, in oil and gas. And I started to kind of learn, you know, some of the problems uh, that oil and gas companies faced, uh, the most poignant of which was trying to get their data organized in a way where you could see sort of like a single view of the well, uh, and, you know, try and, and use that as a launch pad to sort of find every piece of information that was hidden in all the various databases and back-end systems and SAP and all that stuff. So so in, in, in the process of trying to sell oil and gas companies web content management software, we, we kind of ended up being in the integration business, uh, meaning we had to integrate data about their wells uh, into, um, in, into lots of uh, other systems. And ultimately, some of that data had to land in the, on the web, which is, which is kind of what they... Uh, would be uh, would be hiring us to do so. So way back in '99 and 2000, we hooked up with Anadarko, Cabot Oil and Gas, like a whole bunch of different oil companies. I just kind of started mm. learning the workflows, learning the business, and I really started. I liked the business a lot, so much so that when the downturn for tech uh, happened in 2000, and our business in, in Colorado uh, wasn't doing quite as well, um, I actually moved uh, to Houston. And really built built an entire business uh, around uh, oil and gas companies. At that time, they were they were doing okay uh, financially, and we just sort of gained a foothold and went from there. So, kind of started by putting together you know well header information systems, and then over the years, I worked uh, for uh, my 
my own company that I started, lots of uh, other uh, like systems integration companies. I just kind of learned uh, the industry from that perspective. So it's not it's not part of my formal education. I'm I'm actually an economist uh, and a statistician uh, by background, um, but. It was really when I started at, at Hess uh, and kind of, I started there in 2012 when they really started ramping up their, their shale operations uh, in the Bakken. Uh, and I kind of, I saw the amount of capital that was going into that. And I became super interested in sort of combining my economic and statistics background with the, the way that decisions were made about deploying a massive amount of capital. And that really became the impetus or, or really the spark for, for the idea that ultimately became, uh, became Novi uh, when, when we started the company. Well, it's pretty cool. You don't hear many people moving from Boulder to Houston. That's not the normal, uh, normal path for, for migration, but, and I, I got another little comment. It's kind of funny. A friend of mine told me this, he works at Hillcorp and he's, he asked me once, and this is when I was at Spotfire because we did the same thing, you know, everybody seems to go to Anadarko first, right? Back in the early 2000s, seemed like they were buying every piece of technology. Anyway, and he, he, he comes to me one day and he goes, how come all of you guys, when you come in to talk to us, you all want to talk about what you're doing at Anadarko? And he said, how much money do they have up there? <laughs> A lot, apparently. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. You've seen they the had, they literally, they were the starting ground for, you know, Spotfire. That was our first oil and gas place. And uh, E-Linear, I guess that might've been your first kind of uh, attack in the oil and gas business as well. It was just kind of interesting that everybody kind of paraded through Anadarko there for a couple of years. Data hounds. Um, yeah. No, it's, it, it's pretty cool uh, to have Boulder and Houston represented, which is really what our podcast is, right? I'm yeah, here in, that's right. in Boulder. East Boulder County and uh, Tim's in um, what the Eastern part of the massive Houston Metroplex. So uh, I, I uh, obviously major cultural differences, John, between the two places. What was that like for you to make that move from Boulder and, and, you know, the early two thousands to head down to Houston? Certainly, um, you know, had to trade in your winter parka for some tank tops, but uh, tell me a little bit about sort of the shift in, uh, you know, culture and, and how everything was from that front. You know, I, I, um, <clears throat> I, I liked Texas immediately. I, I had never really spent time in Texas, uh, other than, other than a, a very short stint in college in uh, South Padre, which I don't remember much of, um, honestly, I don't remember the names of any of the places I went when I was there. I'm not proud of that, but that, that's the truth. Um, but I, I've always liked Texas and I've always liked Texans. You know, it's the, the entire the entire economy is built on this sort of one in 10 philosophy. Like you, you, you drill a bunch of dry holes, you drill some really mediocre wells, and then you just have three or two or one incredible wells that sort of just sort of make up for all the all the all the all the other failures. So the entire economy is, is kind of it's kind of built in to, to the way people think in Texas. So they're they're they're. They're as far from risk averse as you can get. They're gregarious, you know, outsized personalities. And I just kind of found that I fit right in. Uh, so I haven't left Texas since. Um, I also married a Texan. Uh, she's, she's from uh, just, north, just north of Houston. Uh, so while she doesn't want to live in Houston, we're never leaving the state. Uh, like we're not going to be able to live anywhere else because she's a Texan. And one thing I've learned about Texas is it's like a centrifuge, like every, everything, everyone that's born there eventually spins back to the middle of it uh, and, and ends up living somewhere in the state. So 
for all those reasons, I mean, I, I loved Boulder. Don't get me wrong. I loved skiing all the time and, and having that, you know, that the outdoor was great. I was in the, I was in the middle of trying to hike all the 14 ers uh, all the mount, all the mountains above 14,000 feet. And I was close uh, to getting that done, but it was, it was a good, it was good timing. It was the right thing to do for the company. And, and uh, I, I just found a, I found a home for myself, not just my company, but for myself. And, you know, I'm not inclined to leave anytime soon. So we'll get into the founding story here in a little bit, but you've, you've located your, your Novi labs, obviously Hess, you were in Houston, but you've, you've uh, located Novi labs there in Austin. That's another, I mean, if you're, if you're not from Texas, the difference between Austin and Houston is, you know, pretty significant as far as culture and places to live. Why'd you go put the company in Austin? Um, you know, when we, when we were first getting started, uh, you, you've got to have, I mean, the first thing you have to do if, if you're founding a software company, especially one that's focused on, you know, a fairly esoteric discipline like statistics and, and data science and machine learning, you, you kind of got to go where the talent is. So I wanted to be in Texas because uh, I felt either Texas or, or Denver uh, were the two places that I, I focused on the most. I, I was willing to live in either, but my wife being a Texan, as I said earlier, leaving Texas is probably going to be difficult. So we our kids were born in Austin. I lived in Austin before Houston. There's a lot of tech talent here. I mean, you got to compete with Facebook and Amazon and Google and now Tesla and, and Oracle is moving here as well. But but uh, the, there's a lot of talent here. I'm not saying that there isn't talent in Houston because there is. Uh, it's just the deep data science, machine learning, statistics expertise, a lot of that talent's here. So we kind of went where the talent was with close proximity to all of the major oil and gas hubs. Like it's easy to get, you know, to Houston or, or Pittsburgh or Denver or Oklahoma City or Tulsa or anywhere where there's uh, or Calgary, even, I mean, anywhere where there's a lot of uh, oil and gas companies that we might want to sell some software to. So it just sort of being, ended up being a good confluence of things. Um, there, there wasn't any one thing other than the talent draw that really um, made us come here. Um, and then for me personally, my, my, my wife loves Austin. She'd lived in Austin for 20 years after leaving Houston. So she had a strong preference there. As well, and if you're if you're if you're the founder of the company, you're going to put the money and take the risk. Yeah, you got to make your wife happy. Uh, that's really pretty important. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so for all those reasons, we ended up ended up in Austin. Yeah, I mean, f- fun town. I've always enjoyed my my business trips down there. Uh, a lot more fun than business, it seems like. But I think that's sort of the theme of uh, of that city, growing city. Uh, so you said that you started Novi Labs end of 2014, early 2015. In in my recollection, that means basically right when oil prices started to crash and haven't really fully recovered since. So how have you been able to maintain a growing and, and now funded startup um, with a less than ideal commodity price environment? Yeah, we, you know, we were fortunate out of the gate. So my, you know, Hess, where I used to work, uh, Prior, prior to starting Novi, uh, ended up becoming our first customer. So in, in the startup world, if you're going to start a tech company, you know, it, it's a hell of a lot easier if you have some revenue and you have like an actual name company that's behind Definitely. it. It's much easier to, to attract uh, the kind of venture investment that you need to at least get started. Uh, so so when, we first, when we first got started, you know, they became our first customer uh, and because of the proximity to Houston, the venture community in Austin was familiar with oil and gas, but they weren't heavy investors 
And at the time, there weren't a lot of tech companies. I mean, like like RigUp was just getting started. Uh, there was RunTitle, you know, there was Corva uh, was based here, Seismos. I mean, but they were all super early or not even started yet. So there was no sort of digital oil field hub in Austin like, like there is uh, or like, like has evolved uh, has evolved now, but we were fortunate. We got a great investor, uh, a guy named Bill Wood, uh, you know, and, and he, he saw the potential invested early, uh, with us and, and was always very supportive all the, all the way along the way. So when oil crashed, you know, he was certainly aware that this is going to make the level of difficulty a little bit higher, uh, to sell the software. But at the same time, oil crashed, there was also, a huge amount of interest uh, in starting to use machine learning to help uh, optimize some of these assets. You know, there's there's always been an interest in automation uh, in the industry. Uh, and if you kind of trace back the steps, so one of the charts that I love looking at because I'm you know I'm a stats guy uh, at heart, right? So I, I look at uh, I look at the BLS data uh, on how how many how many uh, people are employed uh, in the in the upstream industry. And then you know divide the total barrels of of um, production. Uh, so like when shale was first getting started in 2014, that the MBOE per employee was about 759, right? Today the MBOE per employee is 2,146. So it's it's wow. it's 3x. So so you have a, you have three times the amount of production supported by a lot less. Uh, people working in the upstream industry, and that's that's pure upstream. I'm talking about oilfield services. So I look at that trend, and I see a huge amount of opportunity for companies that that can help uh, oilfield operators add significant efficiency and automation to their operations. Because you can't, you can't. The reason why so many people were employed in 2014 is nobody knew what the hell they were doing. You know, they they were trying to mechanize. <laughs> They were trying to mechanize shale, you know, they were trying to squeeze productivity at the drill bit. And then when the downturn happened, they squeezed the oil field service providers and, you know, got as much blood from that turnip as they can. But then at some point, you can't squeeze them anymore because they're going out of business. Uh, you, you you have to start looking at your own GNA. And a lot of companies did that, especially in 2020. And so we find ourselves with, at Novi, having a pretty mature uh, product offering at this point, we automate. We add a lot of automation and efficiency, and and we are focused on one of the most important workloads in an oil and gas company, which is getting your forecasts right. Uh, so, and, and I think this trend, by the way, of you know the uh, barrels of oil equivalent equivalent per upstream employee, I think that's just going to keep going up, uh, and I think it's going to force a large scale adoption uh, of the kinds of technologies, digital oil field type. Uh, technologies. I think oil fields are going to be a lot more automated in the future, uh, you know, even more so than they are today. And, and it's, it's, it's driven by the fact that oil and gas and specifically shale has got to produce returns for investors. And if they don't, they're not going to get any more money. <clears throat> so it's a matter of, yep. it's, a, it's a matter of, uh, uh, it, it's a matter of need now, not want. Uh, and that's really what's changed that I've observed over over the last five years. Like machine work, machine learning is not a buzzword. AI is not a buzzword. These are tools, and you need these tools to be able to get the work done uh, that needs to be done in the oil field uh, with with heavily diminished uh, staffing footprints. Okay, so I want to get into that that last little bit that you you talked about there. So I have, well, I've been. 
involved in some early stage opportunities where we're talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence. And one of the things, and I already know where you're going to take it, so I'm leading you a little bit here, John, but one of the problems that we face as an industry, as kind of an aging industry, you know, I'm a 50 year old and we want to, we're talking about machine learning. And one of the problems has always been that machine learning, artificial intelligence in oil and gas always seem to be a solution wandering around looking for a problem. And usually when I've had consultants come in and talk about it, they want to get the data and sit on it for three or four months, let the machines churn on it, and then come back with an answer. And we say, ah, well, the answer is B, always do B. And so, and then of course, as a reservoir engineer, I'm always asking, hey, how did you get to that? How, explain to me how you got to B. So anyway, so you got this black box problem where you dump all this data into this machine. It just does things. And then you have to explain it to engineers and them get confidence that they can trust that moving forward. So how did you guys kind of overcome that? Yeah, it was, you know, uh, pe- pe- engineers in general, let's separate just engineer the, the, the discipline of engineering, all of the disciplines of engineering. You can't just give an engineer an answer and just say, hey, trust me, it's right. I mean, the stats, the algorithms, they say it's right. It's right. That's the answer. It doesn't work. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we certainly found that to be true with petroleum engineering, uh, reservoir engineering, all, all geoscience, all the, all the disciplines, uh, you know, that are, that are employed in the oil and gas, you know, to, to develop fields in oil and gas. So uh, luckily for us, uh, a couple of University of Washington students um, modified the work of a Nobel Prize winning mathematician named Lloyd Shapley. Um, and what they basically did was they adapted uh, Shapley's game theory driven work uh, to the general discipline of, of machine learning models. And, and their, their goal uh, was to use game theory to try and help explain why uh, mach- a machine learning model made a specific prediction. Uh, so we took that paper from University of Washington, which was published a few years ago, uh, and then we actually adapted that in our pipeline. And we started producing data that we call Shapley data, which is an unimaginative use of the dude's last name. Um, but, but the point is, uh, you, with every forecast that we make, there are two data sets that we provide alongside the forecast that are really important uh, for our customers. Number one, we, we, we show in barrels or MCF, depending on what the model was trained on, uh, we show what the impact of every single one of the features that was used to train the model. So how much did spacing move the prediction up or down, or how much did uh, subsurface move it up or down, or various uh, completions variables, and so on. So if, as an engineer, you can look at that and go, oh, okay, I, be- I believe that. I see where this, this answer uh, came from. Uh, and then the second data set that we provide is uh, analog wells and weights. So we we developed a way to interrogate uh, tree-based models, uh, specifically random forests. That's that's kind of our workhorse. Um, but we interrogate the bottoms of all the trees. That's kind of where all the answers are. And we and we figure out how many times the same answer popped up across all the trees that we made uh, when, when we built the model. Uh, so if you can imagine, well, the answer was the same 60% of the time. This well over here is very similar data-wise to the well that you made a prediction for. So we actually provide all of the APIs uh, and the weight 
that each of those wells influenced a prediction for a well that you haven't drilled yet. So the combination of, of that data set alongside, uh, alongside this feature-by-feature uh, feature analysis, uh, those two things combined are really sort of broke through that, that barrier for us. I feel like I'm going to school right here on this stuff. <laughs> you actually went to school and learned some of this stuff, Tim. You're the one that taught it to me. We no, didn't learn Shapley values. I can tell you that. <laughs> No, it's, it's super cool. And, and now you got me thinking, John, what, what else could this be applied to, right? I mean, you're talking game theory, you're talking kind of hardcore statistics. It strikes me as malleable enough that you could work either in other facets in oil and gas or outside the industry in general. Have you given any thought to that? Or is your focus, we're just going to master upstream and, and figure out the most optimal way to, to pull oil out of the ground? Yeah, so there's there's two groups uh, specifically that we're we're catering our, our software to. Obviously, obviously the first one are uh, reservoir engineers, planners, et cetera, the people that allocate capital uh, inside of an oil and gas company. Could be business development groups uh, as well. Uh, so that's always going to be a, a a strong constituency for for us. Um, the other constituency here are the banks, the A and D. Uh, uh, and lenders, reserve reserves, auditors, et cetera. Uh, there's a whole uh, sort of subsphere uh, of other industries that uh, essentially analyze and loan money to oil and gas companies. So those 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 uh, those people, those companies are very interested in understanding how oil and gas assets might perform before they hand over, you know, a couple hundred million dollars to go buy one, and then even more hundreds of millions of dollars to develop it. Uh, and then also, once once an oil and gas asset is 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 running and underway, you're constantly evaluating and reevaluating uh, how you're uh, allocating capital into that asset so that you can continue to grow it. So, I, I think we're going to stay focused uh, on these two uh, verticals, and we're going to we're going to stay focused on. Uh, the challenge of uh, economically optimizing the returns on these investments, because I believe fundamentally that if you if you are helping companies produce better returns, they're going to be it's going to be easier for them to attract investment, and then the industry will self perpetuate. Uh, but we got to get to a point where the decision making is better, uh, especially in shale. We, we we have to lose less when these wells are drilled, and I believe the answer that we all seek is in that data. And I believe we've developed a way to get it out. And for those reasons, I want to stay focused on that until we've, we've influenced the outcome to a greater degree than we have today. I mean, I think commercially we've done, we've done well, we've attracted a bunch of customers. You know, we have, we have some great companies that signed on with us early and stuck with us, even though our software was crap for a few years there. And finally <laughs> enough breakthroughs, we got to the point where it was pretty good. And now, now it works almost 100% of the time, and, and the answers are consistently good. So I, I believe this, this discipline is necessary, but the penetration rate right now, even for what we do, as valuable as it is, the, the penetration rate's still in the, in the teens, you know, so that, that's not where it needs to be. It needs to be 80, 90% penetrated, whether it's us or, or somebody else. So I feel I am compelled because I do love the industry. I am compelled uh, to push that forward uh, and and make enough progress to to get the industry where I think it needs to go. That is pretty interesting. The, the approach is it's more of the rifle shot to 
a problem that we're going to solve using machine learning rather than kind of the shotgun. Hey, we have a machine learning tool and we're going to go just stick it on whatever data we can get. It's a different approach. I think it gives you, I think it probably shortens the sales cycle and you know who to approach in every oil and gas company. Does that sound about right, John? Yeah. And I, you touched on something like really important there, the the data, right? So, so you, you can't, I don't care what sort of fancy statistics and algorithms and whatever that you use. Um, you know, the problem of creating an optimized data set is like really, it's really tough. Um, so we, we actually responded to that. We, we took like, like, uh, you know, six years worth of pain and it was miserable. I mean, it's miserable to create a data set that is useful for training these models. The problem with machine learning is it works really well, right? So if you screw up the data, uh, then the, whatever model you build is going to be garbage. It's going to give you wrong answers. Uh, and if, yep. if you give enough people wrong answers, then the entire uh, reputation of this discipline is going to be sullied within the industry. So, so we've always worked really hard to make sure our software doesn't give people wrong answers. Uh, um, and, and I, we, you know, we thought, you know what, we're going to, we're going to take everything we've learned and build it into an application that is specifically designed to allow customers to onboard the data faster, to build high quality data sets that they can analyze and so on. So like the concept of using data and trying to get insights and answers out of the data, like that, nobody, no, no executive in oil and gas would disagree with, oh yeah, we should do that. The problem is the data is, in, is typically in pretty bad shape, especially operational data. There's like gaps, you know, there's like, oh, well, there's I was- bad drilling. data in the oil and gas industry? Yeah. Oh, my, my rate of penetration was zero yet when it turned back on, you know, the drill bit was, was 200 feet further down. Like, well, obviously the rate of penetration wasn't zero. Uh, you know, like that's just a stupid example, but you know, there, there's just a lot of chunks in, of, of, of data that are missing because a lot of this data was used not, not for analysis. It was produced only to be used in real time. So the drilling operator could steer the bit and, and, you know, and, 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 and hit the, the, uh, you know, the number of days goal that they're trying to hit. They, they didn't have any goals around, oh, let's make sure the data is good when we're done. Uh, so a lot, of work, a lot of work had to be done to sort of build the tooling in to clean this up automatically so that it's actually useful. And then subsequently, the models and the applications you build on top of, of those models are, are going are gonna to be far more likely to give you right answers. And yeah, the, the problem with bad data doesn't start with just the technical stuff. Just the well name alone is the biggest problem. Yeah. No, how, do you, no how do you get all the wells? The same well has 19 different names and different systems. How do you get yep. all that together? That's a big problem. Jeremy? Yeah, no, no question. Um, so when you look at your potential uh, clientele, do you feel like it is any traditional onshore operator, regardless of size? It could be a company with, with a dozen rigs going. It could be one rig. Uh, how about offshore? Do you do anything with offshore? Like who is your, your ideal company to do business with? Yeah, so we've, we focused um, our energy and attention uh, and R&D resources thus far on, on, on shale. Uh, so that would be, you know, an unconventional horizontal weld. But we, we did that primarily because, you know, throughout, throughout our existence as a company, that's where most of the capital is going. Um, there's certainly opportunities in onshore vertical wells. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of thousands, millions uh, of, of vertical wells out there. So, so that's an obvious you know, thing for us to sort of, sort of expand into. And fortunately for us, it's actually a simpler problem than, than the horizontal 
uh, horizontal drilling uh, optimization issue or problem. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna we, we want to stack uh, full optimization for vertical on top of what we already do in horizontal, uh, and then it, it would be natural for us to expand into uh, offshore as well. Uh, so we, we've dabbled in it a bit. We've looked at some of the data that's available. It looks promising, um, but we we have not we have yet to you know build an actual viable uh, viable solution in in that space. Um, so that's kind of where where we where we sit now. And you know, if you look at capital, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the offshore development, the capital was pulled back from that because there's so much capital that's that's required. Uh, you yeah. know, whereas shale, the attractiveness of it is it's much easier to turn off and on. You know, you you turn drilling back on, you spend a lot less money than you would spend on an offshore uh, opportunity, and and you're you're, you're producing relatively quickly. Uh, so we're going to stay focused on that for now. Stay focused on onshore. Um, but we are very intrigued by the, the development of international onshore plays. I mean, I just read an article today uh, about the uh, Jafura field. Uh, it's operated by, by Saudi Aramco. I mean, they're very, they're very aggressively drilling uh, out there. I've seen, some other, uh, I've seen some other activity in Middle East, more activity in China. Uh, Vaca Muerta is, a, is in serious uh, late stage emerging, <clears throat> almost scale development stage. Uh, I see a lot of opportunities to sort of export learnings, uh, you know, th from lower 48 and, and Canadian drilling uh, that we can we can utilize to help those early stage international plays really start to emerge. So we'll, we'd probably focus on that first before, you yeah. know, before we start looking at the uh, the challenges in the offshore space. Hmm. No, that's that's cool. So, hey, I want to take you back to the business side of this now. So you said it seems like fairly early on you got the support of, is it Bill Wood or Bob Wood? Bill Wood, yeah. Bill Wood. And then, you know, not too long after that, you got some some backing from, well, what was then Cottonwood Ventures and now is uh, Montrose Lane. I think they changed names in the last two weeks or something like that. Yeah, that's $64 right, yeah. Million. yeah. So anyway, so I want to talk to you about the – all right, you you go out and get private equity money, and that's fantastic. It helps you grow and do the things at the at the scale and speed that you want to do. But what's life like at a startup before the PE money's there and afterwards? What, what is it? A big cultural shift, a big change? Is your life better or worse or more complicated, less complicated? What's that like getting that money in that that first big tranche and really moving forward with it? You know, we. we um we were relatively conservative in terms of the amounts of money that we raised. So I, I have a sort of personal philosophy relating to this, which is you should you should never you should never raise more money than you can realistically plan to spend. So if your answer uh, to the question of if I gave you another dollar, what would you do with it? If your answer is I don't know, but it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Just give me that dollar and I'll figure it out. Uh, that's a bad answer. Uh, so so I think we've always looked at at uh, you know raising capital as okay let's let's make sure that at any given time the company is funded for eight for eighteen months if we execute our business plan uh, and if something like COVID happens and we have to we have to change our plan in some way you know we we have flexibility to do that but I don't think you should change the way that you run a business because somebody has given has entrusted you with with their capital. Uh, you know, I, I view it. I view it as they, 
you you have an agreement with them about what you plan to spend that capital on. We've always had at Novi, we've always had a budget. Like this is this is what we think we can do uh, revenue wise from customers. This is the R and D spend that we think is the right investment. Uh, you know, given the revenue and the money that you've given us, and this is uh, wh- where we hope to be in in ninety day slots for the next you know for the next year. So. The fact that they've given you money really should be used to do one of two things. Number one, accelerate your R&D. And that is really important early and less important as you mature and, and your product is more mature and you have more customers and more, more revenue from them. Uh, and then the second thing you use investor capital for is to ramp your sales team. Because uh, hiring, uh, uh, as Jeremy will tell you, hiring salespeople is kind of expensive. Uh, so, so uh, you know, when you, when you hire salespeople, your product has to be ready to scale. So if you hire really good salespeople, they're going to be successful. They're going to they're going to they're going to drive meetings. They're going to drive product. And if and if the answer every time is well, I can't buy your product because it doesn't do this or it's deficient in this way or it's not flexible enough. Like if you don't have product market fit, you shouldn't be hiring salespeople. So the common mistake I see among venture back companies is they don't have product market fit. They sell a venture firm, a private equity firm on a vision of them being able to achieve massive revenue growth. And then as they, they hire all the salespeople and the salespeople become frustrated and they, and they leave. So I think we've done a pretty decent job at Novi kind of managing the early stage R&D investment that was required. And, uh, and then now we're starting to finally uh, uh, ramp up our, uh, our sales team because we believe after six years of toil and trouble, uh, we finally gotten our software to the point where it solves a wide enough swath of problems to where it's generally, you know, commercially viable, and and we can get meetings, and we can get second meetings, we can write proposals, and we can close deals. Yeah. So, what in the last uh, few weeks you've doubled the size of your sales department, right? <laughs> that is true. Uh, we actually uh, uh, we actually just hired our first uh, marketing person uh, as well. Uh, so I'm. Very, uh, very excited about that. So we're actually going to do some like real marketing campaigns, not just, uh, you know, myself and one of our technical advisors uh, doing amateur hour <laughs> email campaigns and whatnot. We're going to be doing doing some real stuff. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. And we do we do have plans to continue. We're going to invest more uh, on the on the sales side as well, because like I said, we're at a point where our product is generally useful. It doesn't take too long to deploy and, and it solves a lot of really important problems, especially in, in the current environment. So that when you have that set of circumstances, it's time to it's time to start ramping your investment on the sales side. Yeah, I mean, you you said a lot of stuff there that resonates with with me and and really anybody who's been sort of through this venture backed world. Hey, we gave you money. You're going to do two things. You're going to make your product the best in the industry, and then you're going to throw salespeople at it. Right. So it does require some discipline on your side to say, maybe we're not ready to throw salespeople at it yet, or um, it's time to step on the gas and, and let's grow this thing. So good for you for, for holding off. And, uh, you know, certainly I think that'll pay dividends in the long run. But let's jump real quickly into some of the uh, lighter stuff that I've been meaning to ask you. So Gators, man. I mean, I feel like when I was growing up, the Florida Gators football team in the, uh, the old ball coach, Steve Spurrier football days where they were like Alabama, man, they were the dominant team. And then somewhere along the lines, even up through Tim Tebow, like what's happened the last 10 years. 
Well, we weren't too bad this year. We had a Heisman candidate. I mean, come on, you know, it's not, it's not as, uh, it's, it's not as, it's not a bleak of picture. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we haven't been. Florida hasn't been super competitive on the on the uh, national championship stage, but we've had some. We've had a couple of good teams. But you're right. Like in the last ten years since Urban Meyer left uh, in 2008, <clears throat> you know, it's been it's been a little rough and tumble. Uh, for us, but you know, the SEC is a competitive league. Um, you know, there's, there's some great coaches and great teams. So it's just kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to be awesome like every year, but I will tell you a great story. So, uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but my freshman year, uh, at Florida was 89, which was Emmett Smith's last year at Florida. Nice, uh, he was nice. a junior. So that's how old I am. He's like had a 16 year career and retired, like, I don't know, five years ago. You know, And, and, and yet, you know, he's probably like a couple years older than me. Uh, but anyways, uh, my, my sophomore year, that's when Steve Spurrier came in. So that's really before 1990, Florida had never won an SEC championship, let alone a national wow. championship. Yeah. So they had one in 84, but it was stripped because, uh, I think, uh, most of the defensive line had a little problem with the, with the hookers and blow. <laughs> uh, and they got caught, uh, and uh, a whole bunch. Of, then it would that surfaced a bunch of recruiting violations, uh, allegedly. Uh, it, the '80s uh, are flush with with teams that wasted the entire decade because of recruiting violations. Yeah, yeah I mean, like SMU being, being the one that comes to mind the most. Oh my god! Right well, here, even, but, you know, my alma mater, A and M, was probably a, a hair lash away from getting the death penalty two years after SMU. I, I got to say, man. So uh, for all the A&M guys out there, I think uh, the nickname of RC Slocum uh, being RC Chokum, that has got to be the the best like Nick coach nickname I've, I've, I've ever heard. I, I probably, that's, that's probably offensive to you, but, but it's been, it's been long enough. It's not too soon. I mean, he hasn't been the coach for like, like a long time. Uh, but uh, for all the AM folks out there, I'm actually quite happy to see, uh, you know, AM doing well. And since they don't play uh, in the SEC East, I'm, I, I, I root for them. I mean, somebody's got to give give Alabama some, you know, a little bit of a headache. So uh, maybe next year's no the year. We'll see. Well, R.C. Slocum, like uh, the first President Bush, his reputation got better after he was uh, gone <laughs> when he was like, actually did, there. Did he, did he become a painter uh, like like GWB or or what? No, he's what? he's a he's an A and M evangelist. He's still employed by the university. Yeah, he's. A, I mean, he's he's no doubt he's a, he's a he's a good man. I just thought that was a yeah, kind of that is funny. a pretty good one. Yeah, and I know funny. how how uh, last names can be used to uh, to appropriated to make fun of someone too. So that's pretty good. <laughs> so, Hey, uh, COVID we, we touched on her a second ago. How is, you know, what's your experience? I mean, you're a young company and you barely, you know, half of your guys probably have spent more time away from the office than they have ever been in your office just because of COVID and, and all that. So what's that been like to, for you guys, how have you adapted for COVID? You know, when it, when it first became kind of a reality, like it's probably mid-March when I realized like, oh my God, we're going to have to like, we're going to have to shut down our office. Like, you know, uh, we're going to have to complete, I mean, we already had Zoom and all sorts of tools like that. So that made things a little easier for us. Uh, but then I was thinking about like, what's going to happen to our customer opportunities? Uh, like we had a number of opportunities with like, you know, smaller private equity backed uh, companies that were, you know, that wanted to buy our software to help search for 
you know, for new assets. And that, that just imploded. That whole market just imploded for, totally. for probably two quarters. So we were fortunate in the sense that we, we had we released what I think is our blockbuster product in January of, of, of 2020, right? So, and that product took a huge amount of effort out of the process of uh, designing your, your capital, capital allocation and development plan. So we were very fortunate that we, re- we released the exact right product at a time when that became the most important thing uh, for oil companies to solve. So last year, even with COVID, we, we grew our revenue by over 100% year over year, which we actually were just, just reviewing with our board, uh, the Novi board yesterday, uh, our numbers for the year. And I was just looking at it. I'm like, God, it's one of our board members made the comment, you know, it's like, it's like COVID never happened with you guys. And I, I think it's because we, we, we probably would have done a lot better had COVID not happened. Um, right. But, but a lot of the sort of efficiency and all the things that our tooling brings to the, our software brings to the table, uh, a lot of that be, suddenly became non-optional. It became mandatory, uh, and and you know, smart smart companies chose to use use that time to uh, to invest with us, and so we we didn't have to lay anybody off. Uh, you know, we we stopped hiring for a little while, about probably two quarters, and then. You know, we were doing so well uh, revenue-wise. We we started hiring again uh, in, in you know Q4, uh, and and now we've we've you know we've hired a sales account executive, we've hired a uh, marketing person, we've made some more hires on the R and D side, <clears throat> we've hired a DevOps person, et cetera, et cetera. So we're right back on uh, on target for uh, another you know sixty or seventy percent revenue growth this year. So we feel we feel pretty good about that uh, at the moment. Man, well, that's exciting, and and certainly wish you all the best of luck with that. You know, I think you're certainly onto something, and and personally, I'm going to be excited to to watch your growth. So, John, really appreciate you coming on today, Tim. Any final thoughts for uh, Mr. Ludwig? No, I think this is a you know, it's it's great to hear your approach to this. I'd uh, love to hear that you're you're growing. I think uh, not many companies through COVID can talk about what a good year 2020 turned out to be for them. So I'm really happy to hear that about you guys and really hope it continues. Really want to follow you guys uh, through this. So really appreciate you coming on and thanks a bunch. Yeah, sure guys. Appreciate you having me.